Welcome to Right to Equality with me, Charlotte Proudman. In each episode, we'll be sharing a space for curiosity, empowerment, education and laughter with a range of guest speakers that are all working to achieve equality and freedom for all. This is about cutting-edge feminist politics and our fight for equality because feminism changed my life. It made me learn that we can use our voice to challenge the status quo, to change the world and to push boundaries. So let's start here and now together. Hello and welcome to our new podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the topic of consent, rape and sexual intercourse and all of the complex issues surrounding it. Talking about these issues with me today is Alexandra Bourne and Nicole Bogart from Conversations on Consent. I'm Dr Proudman, I'm the feminist barrister and campaigner. Nicole Bogart is the director of the Philia Project Association and co-initiator of the Conversations on Consent campaign. If you haven't looked it up, I strongly advise you to do so. They're doing some brilliant revolutionary work. She is also a political scientist, published author and public speaker. Her research and analysis focus on power dynamics and governance in the international context. I'm also joined by Alexandra Bourne, business owner, proud feminist, financial director of the Philia Association and co-initiator of the Consent Revolution, a community-driven leadership initiative working for equality and justice globally. Both Nicole and Alex work very closely together on reframing consent. We've all been working together really hard to come up with a revolutionary radical definition of consent that reflects meaningful, mutual, respectful consent. What does that actually look like in 2022? Well, recently we all spoke at an event that both Nicole and Alex organised with the EU Commission. At the moment, the EU Commission is looking at the harmonisation of the definition of consent across EU countries. So that event on consent could not have come at a better time. Thank you both for joining me today on this important podcast. My first question to both of you is an important one, I think, and that is to discuss uh, with our listeners, in your own words, what consent really is. Consent, it can sound like quite a nebulous concept, but actually what does it mean in practice and how does it work? It's one of the biggest issues that continues to plague people in intimate relationships, as well as often when cases end up in the court uh, after rape allegations and rape occurs within relationships or with strangers and so forth. So perhaps, Alex, you can come in first. What does consent mean to you? Basically, it means a past consent doesn't mean future consent. In regards to relationship, just you consented one time to a sexual act doesn't mean you consent the other time. And um, it's important to always check in and keep on checking in with each other in regards to consent. And consent is um, always given without deceit, 
are forced, coercion, and also freely given and um, like free from any force. So, I mean, we came up with a definition of consent. You also worked on it and also the Oxford professor, Jonathan Herring. But I think we still have um, like more to include, like, for example, reverse the burden of proof um, and um, make the perpetrators... Um, accountable and not put the burden of the, uh, onto the victim. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. I mean, thinking about, you know, what it means to change the definition of consent enshrined within legislation, Nicole, what do you think are some of the most important elements that ought to be included when it comes to consent? This is exactly what the whole campaign is all about, to make sexual criminal law better. Um, and serve um, victims much better. And one of the things that we found is to really bring um, perpetrators into the equation when it comes to the law. Right now, um, laws are very much focused on the victim or survivor. It, it's very much focused on their behavior. And we want to um, add the perspective of the other person and how they should behave and how they should seek consent and in what kind of way that should should be done. And um, Alex rightfully already said um, there needs to be um, a respectful interaction, um, especially respect to people's spaces. And I think what's also very important beyond sexual criminal law is just to recognize that consent is something that surrounds us in society at large, right? In, in all kinds of interactions, whether it's in the health sector, whether it's in the business sector, whether it's about our data, it's not such a foreign concept. And basically, if you really break it down, it's just to recognize that each and every person and each and yeah, every entity, we could almost say, um, needs to be awarded their own personal space that only they have um yeah, full control over and could share that space with somebody else. But at first we have to recognize that that space is there so that we, if we engage with each other, um, we do it from that point of view that we, we don't always look at people having to set boundaries, but that we recognize that there is some sort of invisible boundary already there and that we almost inquire if, if we could enter that boundary of, or if we want to share um, a space together. So what I'm hearing then is that a lot about dialogue and discussion between two people and the importance of that focus, which no doubt also involves education uh, as well as training and in looking at what consent means. I wasn't taught consent as part of sexual education or sex ed, as it was called back then. Do you think this would help the issue of consent or do you think it's you know an issue that should be dealt with in the home and, and other environments um, what do you think about that Alex? I think it needs to um, be implemented from institutions such as the state um, into the school system because um, we can't control um, basically how parents teach their children, but we can have an impact on it when we implement it as a lesson in a school. So if, for example, children have sex education about sexual acts, how can they have sexual education but not 
learn about consent. And I think um, learning about consent can't start early enough. Like um, Sarah Casper in one of our podcasts said, like she also said, you can check in even, you know, with a baby, you know, like um, very simple, like, can I touch you? Can I remove your, your dress to change your nappies? You know, it's an easy example, but also the children learn um, about, okay, what is my boundary? The person is respecting me. They're talking to me. They explain me every step what they're doing even when it's changing the nappy for example or whatever what parents need to do you know and the children understand early on what are other boundaries and also what their own boundaries and um, if somebody breaches their boundaries that they also can speak up but it needs to be also that basically everybody needs to learn especially the parents um, interacting with the infant or uh, a toddler you know um, the parent is sending information and need to communicate it and I think there is often a lack in communication and in also in empathy you know like don't if a kid doesn't want to give a aunt a kiss on the cheek it should be also taught with the parents there should be actually also um, campaigns around that because a lot of parents are not educated I'm a millennial and I didn't have it in my um, education in school to learn about about consent. I mean, that's that's a key point, isn't it, Nicole? It's about consent from a really early age. And, you know, I've seen examples of parenting now where, you know, for example, I saw a situation where a girl who was, you know, she was just four years old and she was telling her parent that she didn't want a parent to touch her hair or put her on a knee and she wanted to actually be sitting on the floor and doing something else. And that, you know, was respected in terms of what her wishes and feelings were and acknowledging the fact that she'd said no. And if it is taught at an early age, do you think that can have an important impact then upon the meanings of consent when it comes to sex? And also, Nicole, it's more of a complicated question, but I think very much related to how we teach consent to younger people is, how do you think the conversation surrounding consent should be taught to young adults and teenagers? I think we need to demystify um, consent because right now people feel almost a bit uncomfortable when they're when they hear about having consensual interactions because they're like, what does it mean, right? And I think if we really break it down, um, as I said earlier, it's all about recognizing everybody has a space. It doesn't matter who you are, however old you are, and to have that understanding of yourself as well. So if it, when it comes to... Um, interacting in a consensual way i think it's something that we have to practice and as as alex said sarah casper also um talked about this in in our podcast on education and consent um it's something we have to practice regularly and consciously and if that practice um becomes habit i think then we can have amazing interactions as a society where everybody deserves to participate um, and yeah, if you really want to break it down and also with Filia, we have a lot of communication programs where strangers can practice it, where teammates can practice it, where friends can practice it. It's really about, um, me, what am I going through? Then it's about you, me understanding what you're going through, you understanding what you're going through, right? Like to really have that that uh, established and only then to look at what do we want to do or not want to do and to also recognize that sometimes it's okay if we don't do something together or if we don't yeah if we don't engage right now um, and I think yeah especially for children it's important to realize 
um, that you also have a say. Alex, we've spoken a lot and Nicole's run, you know, a really good amount of colour there in terms of what consent looks like, you know, on sort of a, a practical level, but narrowing in and thinking about people, you know, experience of consent. Would you like to share some of your own experiences about consent and, and how perhaps that understanding of mutuality, respect, conversation, dialogue has not always taken place and, and what that's meant for you and how that's brought you to have this conversation on consent? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, since I'm a rape survivor, um, you could call it normative rape in Germany, which means I had to have to say no. So um, I did that. It's a law. Um, in Germany, it's a law that um, the victim or the survivor had to say no. Um, so that then they basically call it rape. But um, I totally dis agree with that version they should really implement a definition of consent um i had a stranger raping me um i had a ex-boyfriend and then it turned to rape and and then i had the deception where a guy deceived me to in this rindless style for five years and he didn't give me the ch chance to consent to sexual act with the knowledge that he had a um, wife or fiance so he never disclosed that information he was lying and deceiving me for years i called all of that uh, different forms and shapes of rape for me it's all rape and we should find legal grounds and it's punished i think cheating is an awful term because it is rape by deception because the person deceived me or the person coerced me and um, it should change. I know the difference from the dark stranger to a boyfriend. And um, there occur different breaches of consent. It's, it means rape in all cases. It's just in some cases there is no justice for it. So it needs to be implemented in uh, every system. Yeah. And uh, Europe-wide and hopefully one day worldwide, which is actually the goal um, of our campaign. And I think what I forgot to add to my definition is I think consent is empathy and respect and practice. Thank you, Alex, for sharing your story with us, because, you know, I know it takes an awesome amount of courage for all survivors to speak out and, and share what's happened to them. And in doing so, no doubt, you'll give other women a voice who have heard what you have said. It may resonate with them and they may feel in, able to come forward and share their own experiences of what they've been subjected to so thank you but you know you raise an important point there um, in terms of deception and what deception looks like when it comes to consent because we saw the case of the tinder swindler on netflix and we've seen other examples of so-called catfishing where men it's usually men not always of course um, will pretend to be something that they're not or somebody that they're not and perhaps use a false identity and in doing so, may have sexual relationships with women. And, you know, some women have said that they consider that to be rape and that their ability to consent to having sexual intercourse with that individual has been taken away from them because they were denied the full knowledge of who they are. And that's like a violation of their bodily integrity. 
and a right to mutual, respectful, enjoyable even um, sexual intercourse, knowing what they know now. And I know that we've included that in this definition that we hope the EU will adopt. But as Alex has said, it's not the law in Germany and certainly not the law in other jurisdictions. Nicole, do you think that it's important that deception is included when it comes to the law on consent? And how hopeful are you um, that it potentially could be? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm 100% sure we're moving into the right direction because um, once you see something, you cannot unsee it. In some places, I mean, we're working with people from all around the world um, and for some of them, deception is, is already in the law. If you have a partner um, and you want to be exclusive and you you break that, let's say, promise and you tell your partner that is that that is cheating you've cheated but if you continue to have a sexual relationship with your with your with your partner while having other sexual relationships and they don't know that and they can't protect themselves because maybe you've been in the relationship for a very long time and um, it poses a risk to their to their health i mean there's all kinds of uh, diseases you could get but apart from that manipulation that someone doesn't understand their own reality anymore right because you you cannot really trust your own judgment and it's really soul crushing if that happens to someone we cannot be functioning human beings if someone takes advantage uh, of us like that and uh, you cannot work you cannot be creative because you're always kind of second guessing yourself and i think this is this is very destabilizing um and yeah that that's that needs to that that, that needs to stop basically and people need to be aware of that I'm pleased to hear that you think we're moving in the right direction. I think obviously, you know, the fact that the EU Commission are consulting on widening and looking at the definition of consent, we are obviously hopefully moving in the head towards progress. But I think it's important just to acknowledge some of the decisions that we have seen um, made in Europe and, and, and beyond. I mean, if we look, for example, at England and Wales, I know we're no longer part of the EU, but it wasn't so long ago that a judge had found that a woman hadn't been raped because although she said no, she didn't fight him off. Now, whilst that was overturned on appeal, it makes you wonder how prevalent those types of attitudes are. And certainly in courtrooms up and down the country, within the family courts, I have seen those types of attitudes play out amongst um, the judiciary, very sadly. There is a real lack of training when it comes to understanding rape, consent, the impact of trauma on memory and credibility. And I also note that the French Parliament um, approved a landmark bill setting the age of sexual consent at 15. That was in 2021, of being further talks in respect of that. So reducing the age of consent, I mean, certainly in the UK, it's 16. And then if we look at Italy, um, there's been a number of different uh, cases when it concerns rape, uh, but it was a controversial rape verdict, um, which resulted in a lot of conversation about consent and alcohol and how it's dealt with. Um, but in, in this case, it was a partial acceptance um, and on the appeal of two men accused of rape on the basis that their victim had drunk alcohol willingly they were judged to be guilty of rape, having exploited the woman's weakened state as a result of alcohol. But the court ruled that the consumption of alcohol did not constitute 
aggravating circumstances. I mean, there's, there's always a lot of conversation about um, intoxication, the impact that has upon consent, and of course, the power imbalance sometimes between the parties. I mean, these are just obviously a, a couple of examples of many now. Um, Alex, what, what do you think in terms of some of the decisions that have been made by judges, juries, looking at the police and how they investigate crimes of rape, that generally the criminal justice system, both in the UK and wider field, which is often played with allegations of misogyny? I think the situation um, needs literally a constant revolution and we need to go away from this uh, rape culture um, towards a culture where everybody feels safe and not just the perpetrator. Um, as a survivor speaking here, I'm feeling like um, the justice system failed us. And, um, you know, actually this is why I started Krav Maga because I felt like it felt fa failed me so hard that I just feel like... Um, I need to do Krav Maga five times a week to feel, make myself like um, feeling sa safe again because the government is not doing it. So I have to do it. And this shouldn't be the solution. We should find a European solution to develop a constant culture. And uh, we just can start it with a revolution of the current system, of the sexual system. And looking at the statistics um, in dubio pro reo and, um, you know, is long overdue in regards to sexual, um, sexual law and um, the whole rape culture. So, um, I mean, I think around 80% of uh, rape is happening in a relationship. And now here are counted just the ones where basically uh, it is by German definition rape. So um, the survivor said no, <laughs> you know. So I think there is a lot of change we need. Um, so the system, just justice system doesn't keep protecting I mean, intentionally or unintentionally due to patriarchy, the perpetrator. So, yeah, we need big time a constant revolution and a constant culture globally. I mean, absolutely. It couldn't come really at a, a better time. And just to say one of the other headlines that I saw recently on the 11th of July this year, a man was cleared of rape after the judge ruled that the victim invited him in by leaving the door ajar and this was on a night out and it involved a toilet at a pub in Turin, um, which is absolutely astounding and, of course, made headline news. But shocking that this is still going on. I think it's important to note as well, there's been some sort of evolution in consent in some countries, certainly, for example, like in the UK, where we've moved away from the idea of a woman having to fight a man off in order to prove uh, that she didn't consent to looking generally at um, the behaviour overall in its totality rather than putting the onus on the victim. Nicola, I wanted to come to you finally to discuss um, affirmative consent. Um, in recent years, countries have implemented affirmative consent laws when it comes to sex and intimacy. And for those listening, affirmative consent must be informed, voluntary and active um, consent, meaning that 
the demonstration of clear words or actions. A person, usually a woman, of course also a man, has indicated permission to engage in mutually agreed upon sexual activity. So silence, absence of protest or absence of resistance, physical, verbal or otherwise, does not imply affirmative consent. It has to be vocalised. Sweden changed their legal definition of rape in 2018 to consent, um, meaning affirmative in nature. And as a result of that change, um, there has been, it's understood, a 70% increase in uh, cases of rape. In fact, I've said 2018, but I'm not clear it actually was uh, specifically in 2018, uh, or it may have been certainly more recent than that. But nevertheless, it's reported it's been over 70% increase as a result. Um, Nicole, I know that's something that you haven't supported along with Alex in respect to this change. Would you like to say something more about your view on affirmative consent and whether it could work in practice or, or if not, why not? Well, first of all, um, as you've already said, um, legislation differs widely around Europe. And this is also why the Commission now um, introduced the directive on the 8th of March this year in order to harmonize all of the different approaches. Um, and yeah, there are some countries um, where you have to break resistance, physical resistance, um, which is obviously where the bar is the lowest. Um, and then there are countries where there's affirmative consent, as you've just said, like Sweden or like Germany, the no means no approach. And that is much better than the, having to break resistance. When you look at our first podcast episode with Johanna Nellis from the Council of Europe, and actually also the other ones, we usually ask our, our experts what they think about yes means yes. What we really need is a contextual analysis. And I think that... Um, some of these laws also include that. Um, but it's important to make sure that people understand that it's um, consent seeking is very nuanced and it's not just about yes or no, but it's about more than that. It's about understanding power dynamics. One of the laws that we found really interesting as well is the Maltese approach um, that has more of a contextual analysis as we first time actually learned from Johanna Nellis in that first podcast episode, um, who's from the Council of Europe and who drafted the Istanbul Convention that we based our um, our campaign on, um, especially Article 36. It's laws are evolutionary. They, they evolve. But we want to also look at um, looking at all of the different laws around Europe. How can we bring it all together? And, you know, what could be the best, fullest, richest definition of consent that we could draw from. And that's also why we have the consent council that you're a part of so that we can look at all the different legislation, have um, lawyers um, come and legal academics come together and, you know, review all these different approaches and, and say, okay, we have, you know, uh, deception as Jonathan Herring talked about our, also in our podcast um, in certain laws. And then in other ones, we have the reverse of burden of proof, right? Like, so I think it's, it's a great opportunity now to, to even go beyond. I think we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. But thank you both so much for joining us. And for those that are listening, you can go on to the Conversations on Consent, uh, look at the Philia Association, view the website so that you can get a, a greater grasp in terms of the definition of consent that's been advocated by this fantastic 
group when it comes to consent, along as we've heard with Professor Jonathan Herring at Oxford University. Thank you both, Nicole Bogart, uh, Alexandra Bourne, for joining us today on consent, uh, rape, deception, sexual intimacy, and a whole range of other topics that we've covered. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. For those that have joined us, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. There'll be more coming soon. Bye-bye. Bye, thank you.